Good morning. It's Tuesday, October 13th. I'm Shamita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. As the Amy Coney Barrett hearings enter day two, there's more and more talk of possibly expanding the Supreme Court. Today, we start with a look at what it means to alter the court and who would benefit from it. To be clear, Democratic Party leadership has not said it plans to propose adding more justices. Joe Biden gave his clearest answer to that point in an interview with WKRC in Ohio on Monday night. I'm not a fan of court packing, but I'm not, I don't want to get off on that whole issue. I want to keep focused. The president will love nothing better than to fight about whether or not I would, in fact, pack the court or not pack the court, etc. Some liberals have said adding more members to the U.S. Supreme Court would be an appropriate correction for what they see as unfair play by Republicans. The GOP first refused to seat Merrick Garland during Obama's last year in office. And now, with just over 20 days to go until the presidential election, they're rushing to confirm Judge Barrett. Now, Republicans argue they're well within their rights to appoint Barrett. And they're also looking ahead to after the election, warning if enough Democrats are elected, they'll try to, quote, pack the court. That is, expand the number of seats to shift the court's political leaning in their favor. So let's talk about where that phrase comes from, court packing. In the 1930s, coming out of a depression, President Franklin D. Roosevelt was trying to pass a bunch of laws related to the New Deal. But the Supreme Court at the time struck down three of his proposals, and he was angry about it. So he suggested increasing the number of Supreme Court seats to 15. He was trying to appoint more judges that aligned with him to get a different ruling. But this idea was really unpopular with both parties. They said he was trying to pack the court. And the Senate at the time voted against his plan 70 to 20. You see, the number of justices isn't set by the Constitution. It's set by Congress. Ever since 1869, we've had nine Supreme Court seats. But in the early days of the court, that number ranged anywhere from five to even ten. So the court has had nine justices for 150 years, except in 2016, when conservative justice Antonin Scalia died and Republicans refused to replace him with Obama's nominee. That left only eight sitting Supreme Court justices for more than a year. It was the longest vacancy of a Supreme Court seat in U.S. history, And before Donald Trump won the 2016 election, some Republican lawmakers floated the idea of shrinking the size of the court to deny Hillary Clinton any high court nominations. Now, at the state level, there have been proposals to change the size and shape of courts for years. Politico magazine is out with a piece that explains how Republicans have led those efforts to change the number of justices who serve on state Supreme Courts. According to one law professor at Duke University, in the last decade, there have been attempts to change the size of state Supreme Courts in at least 10 states. And in two of them, Arizona and Georgia, those efforts have been successful. Political also looks closely at Arizona as a case study. In 2016, Republican state lawmakers proposed adding two seats to the five-seat state Supreme Court. They argued the court should be expanded in order to decentralize power and open up opportunities for more diverse opinions. The Republican governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, has said his party was not packing the court, that he did not have any political motivations. But Republican lawmakers admitted if the governor had been a Democrat, they wouldn't have supported this change. Fast forward to today. Governor Ducey has appointed five of the seven justices on the expanded state Supreme Court, 
When he took office, the court had four conservative and one liberal justice. Now, it has seven conservatives and no liberals. Many pharmaceutical companies say they cannot get enough people of color to join coronavirus vaccine trials. Now, there's almost no genetic difference between people of different races, but as the medical publication STAT writes, people of color might respond differently than white patients to a vaccine, especially for a respiratory disease, because of social differences like exposure to air pollution that disproportionately affects black and brown communities or higher rates of chronic disease such as diabetes or sickle cell. Recently, the presidents of two historically black universities, Xavier University of Louisiana and Dillard University, issued a joint letter to their communities urging them to take part in these medical trials. And the backlash they got was huge. Yeah. Hundreds of alumni and current students, they all went on social media and they were outraged. One person wrote in a post, our children are not lab rats for drug companies. Another person referenced Tuskegee. That was the study done in the mid-20th century on black men who had syphilis, except they were never even told they had the disease. In fact, they were falsely told they were being treated for something when really they weren't. The Dillard University president said he personally enrolled in a trial through the New Orleans Ochsner Health System. And that made many critics bring up a recent ProPublica article about the spread of COVID in Louisiana. Ochsner was reportedly sending black-infected patients home to die. In some cases, the hospital allegedly discontinued treatment even as relatives begged them to keep trying. As Stat explains, this has been a documented history of abuse, of disregard, and it's led to many black Americans distrusting the medical system in this country. And now it's all coming to a head. The coronavirus has killed close to 215,000 people in America, and it's disproportionately impacted Black Americans, who are three times as likely as white Americans to contract the disease, five times as likely to end up in the hospital, and twice as likely to die from it, according to the CDC. So it's really important that this group is represented in clinical trials. To that end, Shemita, four historically black medical schools, including Howard University, are trying a different approach. Mm -hmm. They're preparing to host COVID-19 vaccine trials on their own campuses, and they hope people of color who may be skeptical of medical trials will be more likely to take part in the trial if it happens at a black-run institution. But these universities also admit changing the attitude of people who have been historically burned by medical trials, that's not going to be easy. Right now, as you listen, thousands of incarcerated people are working as prison laborers in California. They're manufacturing products you may unknowingly be using. These inmates make everything from U.S. flags, license plates, to essential items during the pandemic, like masks and hand sanitizers. These workers in California are paid anywhere from eight cents to a dollar an hour. The L.A. Times interviewed several people at a women's prison called the California Institution for Women. It's located in Chino, just east of Los Angeles, and they introduce us to a woman named Robbie Hall. She's black, 58 years old, and she works alongside other incarcerated women in a prison factory. In the first few months of the pandemic, the workers were sewing masks, but they themselves were not allowed to wear them. And with the demand for masks going up, their hours got longer— 
Hall says at one point she was working 12 hours a day. Then in May, when there was an outbreak at the women's facility, she was one of at least four workers who contracted the virus. Her neighbor found her gasping for air, lying on the floor of her cell. She was rushed to the hospital, and when she returned to prison a few weeks later, she needed an oxygen tank to breathe. In total, more than 350 inmates and 85 staffers at Hall's facility tested positive for the coronavirus. The state agency that oversees these incarcerated workers claims it distributed protective equipment from the beginning of the pandemic and followed public health guidelines and protocols. A state spokesperson told the LA Times that the agency reduced the number of staff and enforced social distancing rules in prisons. But the LA Times interviews with workers like Hall tell a different story. Her countless hours sewing left her with just enough money to buy a fan for $49. She ended up needing that fan during the hot summer months when she was having trouble breathing after she had COVID. But right after she got it, it broke. And she says she's too weak to go back to work in the prison factory to earn more money for another one. Finally, we may have found yet another tool to help us fight COVID-19, man's best friend. That's right. According to Time magazine, a UK-based study is testing dogs' ability to detect the coronavirus. Now, dogs have already proven to be able to pick up on the odors emitted from certain diseases like malaria, even certain kinds of cancers. Now, these researchers are hoping that dogs can do the same for COVID-19, even for people who are asymptomatic. Finland already started pilot programs at its airports. Early research shows the dogs have been able to detect the virus close to 100% of the time. Now, if successful, the hope is to deploy COVID-sniffing dogs at airports, schools, and other public places. Not to replace rapid testing, but to offer another backup to that system. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. Tomorrow. 